0: Welcome back to Life of the party, your catch-all for all things accounting. Recently, we've been highlighting certain tax histories with last week's episode on Chapter 51 of the Internal Revenue Code. In honor of Oktoberfest, we decided that it was only fitting to take a closer look at beer's history specifically related to tax laws and regulations. Wine lovers, hold your horses. We'll be discussing tax laws related to wine next week.
1: As we covered last week, the Internal Revenue Code or the IRC is made up of subtitles, then chapters, and then subchapters, with each tier getting more specific. For example, Subtitle E covers alcohol, tobacco, and certain other excise taxes, and Chapter 51 drills down into distilled spirits, wines, and beer. Did you know that there are actually 690 individual subchapters specifically related to alcohol in the IRC?
0: Wow, that sure is a lot of laws and regulations on alcohol. I guess the alcohol industry has grown enormously over the life of the United States.
1: For sure. While alcohol sale and consumption has been around since the beginning of our nation, the legalization and then supervision of the industry have been evolving for decades. After the American Revolution, many people were actually drinking more alcohol than water since many of the water supplies were susceptible to contamination. Hydration is key.
0: Exactly. I'm paying my respects by hydrating with Michelob. What's your poison?
1: I'm drinking Ghost strain. I prefer the sour beers. Anyways, we'd probably better not start talking about our own personal beer preferences. After all, we did promise our listeners a tax history lesson.
0: Sure, where were we? Oh yeah, the temperance movement stemmed largely from religious organizations demanding total abstinence, or at the very least, moderation. Beginning in 1838, state legislator began to restrict the, hard sale, the sale of hard liquor. While Americans never fully caught into the idea, temperance spread socially.
1: Prohibition was mainly sparked by World War I. You know, all of that German beer that we know and love? Well, fighting the Germans in the war didn't exactly make their alcohol sales all that popular in the U.S., There was actually a wartime dry law passed in the US due to the US's grain production used for food and other war efforts. Eventually, Congress passed the 18th Amendment, which reversed this law.
0: The so-called prohibition period ran from 1920 to 1933. After World War II especially, alcohol resumed its position as a significant factor of American history and culture. While there have been more laws passed to regulate the sale and consumption of alcohol, There has not been another movement quite as drastic as Prohibition.
1: There are actually many unofficial beer-supporting holidays. We're looking forward to celebrating Homebrewing Legalization Day with a special thanks to Jimmy Carter for making that possible in 1978.
0: Well, we're going to take a quick sponsor break and refill our glasses before welcoming our special guest and beer extraordinaire. We'll be right back.
1: Before we introduce our guest speaker, I think that we should spend a few minutes talking about court cases and other legislative materials involving either the sale or production of beer.
0: I bet there, there are cases practically every year. Did you have any in mind that you want to mention?
1: Yes, actually. There is a fairly recent court case that was decided in 2019. The case included the plaintiffs, Greenbush Brewing Company, the Michigan Cider Association, Farmhouse Cider Company, and Vandermill, LLC. The defendants were the Michigan Liquor Control Commission, or MLCC, and then defendants Andrew Deloney, Kirk Cox, and John Reeder.
0: Oh yeah, I remember reading about that one. Apparently the Liquor Control Commission seized Greenbush's wine and heart cider inventory. Why did they do that?
1: In December of 2018, the state of Michigan began restricting what is called bonded transfers of wine. Basically, small winemakers can only sell wine if it has been modified in the manufacturing process to become bonded wine. Greenbush was a licensed microbrewer and a small winemaker, but most of their wine was actually purchased from other companies.
0: So I guess that the issue was Greenbush not complying with the bonded wine modification?
1: Right. Right. When the MLCC discovered that Greenbush was selling unbonded wine, defendants Cox and Reeder went to Greenbush's premises to investigate. There, they spoke to Greenbush's director of operations, who claimed that the brewery only produced beer, not wine or cider.
0: Yikes. So even though that they were receiving the wine and cider from other manufacturers, the brewery wasn't labeling or transforming the unbonded product correctly?
1: Yeah. So once the defendants determined that Greenbush was violating the recent law, they seized Greenbush's entire wine and cider property. Greenbush is seeking primarily a return of their inventory, and they're stating that ultimately federal law should trump state law, which they're actually insisting was vague.
0: What was the decision?
1: Well, ultimately the court denied the plaintiff's motion.
0: I see. I guess that didn't go well for Greenbush's business.
1: It doesn't sound like it. While we're on the subject of legislative materials, are there any other cases that we should mention?
0: Like I said earlier, there are cases in both state and federal courts that deal with sale consumption and transfer of beer. There are also tax-related committee reports that are passed regarding taxing the beer industry.
1: Is there anything in particular that stood out to you?
0: Yeah, the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1990 was very interesting. Before 1990, the present law subjected alcoholic beverages to excise taxes as set rates. For distilled spirits, the tax was $12.50 per proof gallon. Beer tax was $9 per barrel. This was more of a general tax, meaning the smaller breweries qualified for some exemptions from this tax. For example, small breweries often had only to pay taxes of $7 per barrel.
1: That makes sense. So what did the new law enact?
0: The new law was an increase in the excise taxes. The tax on distilled spirits increased from $12.50 to $13.50 per proof gallon.
1: I guess that that isn't too bad.
0: Right, but the tax on beer actually doubled. Instead of $9, the tax jumped to $18 per, per barrel.
1: That is a huge increase. Were the smaller breweries still exempt?
0: Um, to an extent. The $7 per barrel rate remained in effect, but only for the first 60,000 barrels per year, per beer. This impacted the domestic breweries whose total beer production was less than 2 million barrels a year. So ultimately, this helped out the smaller or local domestic breweries.
1: I bet they were grateful for that. Well, on that note, let's take another quick break and then bring in our guest speaker. Welcome back to Life of the Party, and thanks for sticking with us.
0: It's time to meet today's guest. Doctor drinks a lot. Can you remind us what your PhD is in again? Of course, I have a PhD in accountancy, which stems largely
2: from my love of beer. I wasn't too excited to become an accountant until I realized that I could audit breweries. That began what I remember as my favorite pastime: inventory counts.
0: I can imagine that sampling, I mean counting beer, is much more exciting than counting kitchen appliances.
2: Sure. After being assigned to the audit team, inspecting local breweries, I got started thinking about all sorts of tax research topics, including the tax treatment surrounding the beer industry. While my thesis did not focus on beer, I did enjoy learning all about Chapter 51 of IRC.
1: For our curious listeners out there, is there a specific section in Chapter 51 that talks about breweries?
2: Definitely. Subchapter G only talks about breweries. There are about 17 sections that refer to the establishment and operations of breweries.
1: What do you mean by establishment?
2: Well, section 5401 lists what we call qualifying documents. For example, brewery owners must file a written notice with information about protection and collection of their revenue. This notice should be filed before commencing or continuing businesses. So if any of our listeners are thinking about, already operating a brewery, make sure to check that requirement off your list of
0: to-dos. Good idea. So they must file a notice. Anything else?
2: While the notices purpose represents the intention of again the business, the brewer also has to execute a bond. Basically, the brewer is responsible for any taxes on his supplies, whether the beer is transferred from another brewery or exported and sold to others. This section was created way back in 1959. Originally, section 5401 enacted in 1954 generally provided for this kind of thing, but as breweries grew in both popularity and frequency, the U.S. needed to provide more specific regulations. There have been a couple of amendments to this section, first in 1971 and again in 1976 and 2015.
1: Wow, so the tax code really is evolving every decade. I guess that's intended to respond and adapt to current social movements and practices.
2: Exactly. For example, many people must have had concerns or questions about what the code meant by brewer and brewery. Because in 1971, section 5402 was created to provide definitions related to the industry and section 5403 listed cross-references within the code. These three sections make up part one of subchapter G.
0: So part one discusses establishment and the rest are covered in part two? Correct.
2: The code actually skips from section 5403 to 5411, which discusses the use of brewery. The entire group of operations sections have clearly evolved as niches appear in the market. What do you mean? Well, section 5418 talks about beer imported in bulk. I imagine that as beer sales grew, so did the need for regulation.
1: What regulations are there for beer imported in bulk?
2: For beer brought into the U.S. from other countries, it doesn't make sense to pay both the large customs payment as well as the internal revenue tax. That would be like double paying just because the beer is poor.
0: Got it. I'm sure that situation happens a lot since the American beer industry wasn't as established as, say, Dutch or German beers until fairly recently in our country's history.
2: Exactly. So in these situations, the bulk beer is exempt from customs payments and is transported to the brewery where the proprietor becomes responsible for the tax on the beer. This section is the most recent in this subchapter and became effective in August of 1997.
1: It looks like most of the sections are fairly concise, but since we are about to run out of time, are there any other particularly interesting sections that our listeners should know about?
2: Hmm, let me think about it. Our listeners are free to continue research on their own time, since I believe that we've clearly discussed where to find this information in the internal Revenue. Bloomberg tax also contains a wealth of primary and secondary authorities that can provide more info relevant to their interests. Are there any other
0: areas of code that reference beer?
2: Yes, I almost forgot to mention subchapter A, which discusses gallonage and occupational taxes. Part 1 subpart D approaches the actual rates of the beer tax as well as determination, exemptions, and collection.
0: That sounds like a conversation for another episode. Well, in that case, let's go ahead and thank our guests and our listeners for spending their afternoons with us.
1: Join us next week on Life at the Party, and don't forget your wine.
2: I'd like to give a quick rundown of all the primary and secondary authorities that we use before I leave. This will provide all of you faithful listeners a good reference to use if you're curious about learning more about the tax law surrounding this subject. The primary authority was Subtitle E, Chapter 51 of the Internal Revenue Code, Subchapter G, Part 1, which is composed of Section 5401, 5402, and 5403, and Part 2, which is composed of Sections 5411 to 5418. We also looked at Subchapter A and Part 1, Subpart D. Apart from that, we had two secondary authorities, and that was the Tax-Related Committee Report on Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1990, and our case that we investigated, which was Greenbush
0: Brewing Company versus Michigan Liquor Control Commission.